Hey guys, it's just me today. I thought as a way of trying to do a second pledge drive was to have episodes every day, little short episodes that I don't prepare that much for because I don't have that much time to do this. If there were more patrons, I might have more time for it, incidentally. <laughs> but uh, but our next goal really is we're trying to get up to about three, 400 patrons. We're at, we're at about 150 right now. And if we get up to three or 400, we will be able to start paying the co-hosts, which I think we can all agree deserve to be paid. So please become a patron if you're not already. This is the Psychology in Seattle pod- podcast. Seattle, this is the... This you think after hundreds of times saying this, I would have it down. But this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. I thought I would just go over some questions that I get from some of my supervisees. Here's one question. Uh, <clears throat> she says, uh, the therapist in training says, my borderline mom and son terminated and thanked me over and over and over again and admitted that as much as – well, I'll just summarize here. So essentially, uh, she's um, – I often ask my supervisees to provide something that they feel good about regarding their work as a therapist. And this therapist in training is saying that she feels good because her her family – that she is seeing that has a mother who uh, suffers from borderline personality disorder thanked her, thanked the therapist, thanked the therapist in training over and over again and admitted uh, that a lot of things that what the therapist was doing were were beneficial. And this can be a quite gratifying moment. Uh, it's you know quite gratifying for any therapist to hear positive feedback from their cl- from their clients, but it's particularly gratifying, perhaps, when a what we might call a borderline personality disordered client says so. Because with with people that have borderline traits, they are challenging as clients, and and but they can be highly rewarding in that they um, need um, well, they take to therapy very well, and and they also benefit from therapy quite a bit, and so. When things work out for them in therapy, uh, they tend to uh, not only very very much benefit from it, but also will tend to say very nice things. Because, again, the, the reason is not because borderline people are crazy. It's because due to childhood relational trauma, borderline-traded people are d- desperate, naturally, for someone to pay attention to them for someone to be stable in their life, for someone to listen to them, really listen and, and understand them. And when they are uh, threatened by the prospect of being rejected by someone, which happens frequently throughout one's life and throughout one's day, they are so sensitive to rejection that they tend to react very, uh, very in, a, in a very extreme way. But as a therapist, if you can manage that, as I've talked about in other uh, podcasts, you can help a you can help someone with borderline traits uh, to to the degree that you might be the very first person in their life that managed to navigate the rejection waters, if you will. And and so again, they they can be uh, quite grateful to you. And for me as a clinician, 
it's it's one of the major reasons why I enjoy being a therapist is helping people with issues such as this. Because again, if I can be that corrective experience for them, then it, it can be highly therapeutic to them. It's not just like, oh, thank you, therapist, for helping me. It, it In my estimation and evidence shows that when you provide those long-term corrective experiences for clients with borderline traits, you actually reduce their symptoms to potentially to a degree where they no longer uh, meet the criteria for the for the diagnosis. So it's not just a nice thing you're doing for them, it's actually corrective and healing. So that's what uh, that supervisee is saying. Okay, let's see who what else is, is what else are people saying to me? All right, this next supervisee, this next therapist in training uh, was asking me in the past about um, a, a form of therapy called T, TFCBT. So this supervisee, she's saying, so I just started my internship, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I'm, I'm, so just a little bit about internship. If, if you don't know, as a part of training, main, uh, quality training programs and accredited training programs like mine, when you, uh, you're toward the end of your academic time program, you do an internship and it's usually in my program, it's usually for five quarters or 15 months and it is a halftime job. So you're at an agency for three days a week for a year and three months and you're helping clients on the front line and the client's know you're an intern, but they don't treat you as an intern. They treat you just as a regular therapist. And so this is a, a very formative time for therapists. It's uh, very challenging. The interns are highly stressed out, but they're also extremely excited because they've been preparing for you know, this moment for years. And it's they're finally uh, given an opportunity to actually apply the theories and concepts that they've been learning over the years. And so it's really a great time. So this supervisee is, is really happy to start. And she's saying the agency that I work at uh, utilizes TFCBT, but I don't know that much about it. So I was wondering what I should do. Well, TFCBT is trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy. And many of you, or some of you, hopefully, might know what CBT is, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which is the uh, integration of cognitive theory and cognitive therapy and behavioral theory and behavioral therapy. And uh, some other people came along, I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to bother, uh, and developed a, a, an in, a, a further integration with trauma science and trauma therapy science and developed what they call TF, trauma-focused, trauma-focused CBT. And I could go on and on about this, but I've done episodes before talking about the treatment of trauma, and it is, it is quite complicated. And according to evidence and according to my experience, you have to tailor the treatment to the individual because people who suffer from PTSD are not all the same. However, when you hear about quote-unquote evidence-based treatments, they are often tested on clients that are all the same. 
So let me see here. Uh, this is sort of a complicated thing. But uh, in, in my field, and maybe in Seattle, I don't know about other places. I'm guessing other places as well. There's a big movement to start using what they call evidence-based treatments. And one of those happens to be trauma-focused CBT. And although I believe trauma-focused CBT is a wonderful model, it is very rigid uh, if, if used in a rigid way and can actually harm people if used in a rigid way. So essentially, uh, if you're not in the know in my business, uh, the, the beginning of psychotherapy was not very scientific. Freud and all his people basically just through trial and error and through their own experience decided on what was good treatment or not. And they didn't do, you know, uh, randomized controlled uh, trials. They, they just, you know, said, well, let's try this. It seems intuitive. And, and they tried it out and then they taught that method to other people. Well, that sort of mentality dominated the field for decades. And now there's a uh, sort of pushback on that and saying, look, you have to do things that have evidence to it. You can't just do things that you think are working. So if someone comes into your office with post-traumatic stress disorder, you have to use an evidence-based treatment uh, program of some sort, something that has been proven by science to work. You can't and particularly, you shouldn't be using things that are proven by science to not work. And I think this is a wonderful movement. I think that it is uh, very helpful to our industry for a number of reasons. But the problem is, is that when it comes to human beings, human beings are very complex. And the field of psychology, and particularly the field of diagnosing, is a very squishy area. When someone comes in with a broken arm you can diagnose that broken arm very discreetly. There is a undeniable categorization of what a broken arm is and what a non-broken arm is. When you see someone without a broken arm and you do an x-ray, there's no, there's no break in the bone. <laughs> when someone has a broken arm, then it's easily categorized because you see a break in the arm. Now, I'm sure there's even nuances in the medical field in terms of what kind of break or how long ago it was broken or blah, 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 or where in the arm was broken. But anyway, I think you get my point in that diagnosing a broken arm is, is fairly easy. When it comes to diagnosing depression or anxiety, and, all, and there are many types of depressive disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, borderline, all the various other personality disorders, PTSD, other kinds of stress disorders, it's, it's difficult because when you're categorizing different uh, people, you're, you're asking them questions and they are endorsing certain criteria. And when, without going into the details, I hope you understand that it's a very squishy area. Even though our society and maybe our industry would like to believe that it's as discreet as a broken bone. This person has PTSD because blah, 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 blah. This person does not because blah, 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 blah. Well, the, the, if you study enough of the history of, of psychology, you know that the categories of, of psychopathology have changed over time based on P- 
people's opinions, frankly. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, for instance, there's a lot of debate about whether or not to uh, put bipolar and schizophrenia together into the same disorder. And there, that could have happened in the DSM-5. There, that, it didn't happen, but it could have happened where they just combined it as a spectrum disorder of bipolar and, and schizophrenia. And I don't know that much about this, so I might be talking somewhat out of my ass, but just as a demonstration, I know that at least some people were thinking about this. And so imagine if they had done that, then everyone would be subsumed under the same diagnostic category, similar to how Asperger's was subsumed under a autism spectrum. There used to be autism and, there, and, and Asperger's, and now they combine them in, into two different disorders. So, so it, be, you know, that's based on a, basically it's based, it's based on research, but it's also based on opinion and it's based on clinical insight, shall we say. And when it comes to a broken arm, you have a broken arm and that does not overlap with, say, cancer of the eye or something. You know, you don't put those in the same category. Um, I'm sort of rambling. But my point is, is that when it comes to researching different treatment modalities, such as trauma-focused CBT, the first thing you have to do is define what population you're going to study or you're going to try the, the treatment modality on. And one of the ways you do that is you find you, you screen people for your research. And a lot of the TFCBT research is has, the trials have been done on people with fairly simple PTSD, meaning it was an event that caused trauma, usually later in life, and uh, it, it's a discrete moment of trauma, and then they suffer from PTSD after. Like, for instance, they were raped once, or they were in a car accident once, or they were in a natural disaster once, and then they uh, are recruited for a study, and the uh, researchers screen them for other disorders to make sure that they don't have any other confounding disorders. They just have PTSD. And then they put them through this this rigid program, and it follows, you know, by session one, you do this, session two, you do this, session three, you do this. Well, the problem with that, so, well, the wonderful thing about that is that they found that uh, through a lot of different trial and error and a lot of different research, they found that with certain kinds of PTSD that trauma-focused CBT actually works really well compared to other therapies. It certainly doesn't work for everybody, but... For many people, it, it, it's highly successful in, in reducing or eliminating PTSD symptoms. However, what's bad about it is that when you teach this to clinicians, it, it's, hard for, it's hard for clinicians to understand, unless they're taught, that the, the, uh, to understand the context of the trial research projects. And what they hear is, Anyone who has PTSD, you have to use this evidence-based treatment of trauma-focused CBT, and you have to follow the exact guidelines or else it won't work. That's what a lot of not, you know, clinicians will hear, which is 
perhaps not even the message that the researchers want us to know. But, uh, but at the very least, it's irresponsible, in my opinion, as, as a supervisor. Because this is all coming down to this bit of information that <laughs> I'm telling. I've meandered my way, hopefully convincingly, but God knows, to this moment. So say you have a girl who has been repeatedly raped by her uncle from the age of five until ten. So for half her life, she's been periodically and repeatedly and you know, horrifically raped by her, by her uncle. It comes to light, and she enters treatment. And the clinician says, okay, I am going to use evidence-based treatment, which is trauma-focused CBT. Session one, I do this, and, and by session three or four, we are going over what they call the trauma narrative. And I don't know that much about TFCBT, so if any of you know a lot about it and I'm talking out of my ass, uh, feel free to uh, slam me. My whole idea with these, with these daily podcasts for the Pledge Drive is to not prepare so much because if I prepare, then I won't be able to do them every day. So uh, some, of my <laughs> some of my statements uh, are going to be coming out of my butt. And, uh, so this, this might be some of it, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm on target for the most part. So, so anyway, by session, I don't know, four or five or something, you're supposed to be talking about the trauma narrative, which is you're supposed to be having the client talk about the story of the trauma. You're supposed to get the client to start talking directly about what happened to them. Well, if, if, the, if, again, if it was a simple trauma like a car accident, then in all likelihood by session four, the client will be ready to start talking about it. However, if the client has been terrorized for most of their life by a family member whom they're supposed to trust, they're supposed to be able to trust with their life, and this is what we call complex trauma, in that not only was your life threatened and you, you're traumatized, but you're, you also have this relational trauma in that you, know, you, know, you naturally no longer trust human beings at all, particularly the people that are close to you. And so it, it, it not only is traumatizing, but it also is highly stressful to your attachment and your security in the world. You know, if you grew up in a secure environment and your parents loved you and protected you, and then you had this one event that was scary, it doesn't change your worldview necessarily. You think, well, the world is good, and then I had this bad moment. But if you've had bad moments throughout your life, then you believe the world is a bad place, and so that complicates things quite a bit, and it complicates treatment because you're just, as a therapist, you're just another person. Why should I trust you? And so anyway, without going into details, but so with trauma-focused CBT, if if you force or encourage the client to start talking about their trauma in session four or five, in my opinion and in my experience, this will actually re-traumatize the child. In other words, as the child starts to retell the story before they're ready to, they are experiencing that trauma all over again as they remember it, and it's re-traumatizing to them. And they don't have the stability in their life attachment-wise and emotional regulation-wise to be able to help themselves in that trauma narrative retelling. And so uh, TFCBT in in its rigid form, in its evidence-based form, 
is actually, in my opinion and in my experience, harmful to clients. Having said that, if as a clinician you understand the principles of TFCBT and also understand the principles of general trauma therapy and other forms of therapy, and you understand to some extent the biology of the brain when it comes to trauma, then you can react to the client situation. For instance, you could, you could totally be on board with trauma-focused CBT, but you have a – because I basically am, and I'll just use myself as an example. When I work with clients with PTSD, I, I assess them as we go. And I move slowly because I know if I move fast, then not only will that traumatize the client, but I'll lose the client because it, it leads to dropout. People with PTSD drop out of therapy a lot, oftentimes, research shows, because they're being pushed too fast to talk about their trauma because clinicians don't know any better. They think they're supposed to do that. So I will use the principles of trauma-focused CBT, which are quite sound, but I won't use them rigidly to push clients to uh, talk about their narrative before they're ready. And I work with my supervisees regarding this, and and I also work with agencies regarding this too. There are agencies that basically use trauma-focused CBT with all their clients. And uh, I have talked with the supervisors there and said, you know, are, are, are you rigid to the 10 session model? Are you rigid to the exact sequence of events? And, and, and we have conversations about that. And so, so that is that. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Please become a patron of the podcast if you can. We get uh, patrons uh, all the time, new ones, and so it'd be great if, again, we could get up to about three or 400. We're at about 150. We had a new one today, and her name is Bethany. We also have Stuart and Kate and Leanne and Kirsten and Hillary. Now, let me uh, read from the middle of the pack here. How about O'Donny, Jody, Reed, May? Catherine, Elizabeth, Jennifer, Adam, Kirsty Maya, Kirsty Maya, Calvin, Veronica. You guys have some pretty kick-ass names. I like your names. Uh, Cheskins, that's a great name, Cheskins. Zach, Susan, Elaine, Pete, Tina, Sh- Sherry, Visage, Visage, see? You guys have great names. Uh, we have 161 patrons. Uh, again, we want to get it up to about three or 400, so... Again, that does it for this episode, this daily episode of Psychology in Seattle. Let me know if you want me to continue doing this because I don't know if you consider this a good thing to be a daily podcast or like stop bombarding me with a bunch of bullshit uh, episodes. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, that does it. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. You certainly, certainly do.